Okay, the year of reformation still in full effect. Where my paper at? What? I'm supposed to have paper to tell me what week it is. It's week number. Minmo, you took my paper by mistake. Week 10. 10 out of 52. So we got 42 left. Amen. Thank you. You know, I, be, I need my cheat sheets. Thank you. Thank you. I need my cheat sheet. I don't be knowing. It's week 10 of 52. That means we got 42 weeks left to be reformed by the end of this year. It's a countdown. Hello, somebody. Anybody determined by God's grace to not be the same at the end of this year as I was at the top of the year? Anybody? God, if you would grace me with such a, a blessing, I, I don't want to be the same. Hello. Hallelujah. Last week, we looked at reformation through service. Amen. Uh, this week, we have a very interesting topic. Um, something that happens very often, too often, but is what the Father uses to reform us to reform us, to reshape us. None of us like it. All of us have experienced it. And all of us have caused it. None of us like it. This week, we're going to look at the idea and concept of how God reforms us through conflict. How God reforms us, changes us, reshapes us through conflict. Everybody like, heck on it. I told you these messages were pre-selected at the top of the year in January. So if you have experienced this kind of stuff just recently, it is God's will for you to have this word today. It's God's will, okay? I, I, I don't know what you got going on in your life. Well, some, some of y'all I do, but some of y'all be keeping stuff from me. I don't be knowing. And then some of it, I, I, you orchestrated that, not me, right? But you can see we all have experienced conflict. We all have been the cause of conflict. None of us like conflict, right? Um, but it can reform us. Uh, James 4 and 1 makes conflict very clear. James is beginning to speak to the New Testament church, and he's saying in James 4 and 1, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? It's a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, last week we looked at reformation through service, Right? And we recognize that the hardest people to serve is one another in church. And that God said, Christ said that the world shall know that you love God by how you love one another. He wasn't saying how you love the others out there. He's saying the ones right here in the church that I'm talking to. That's how they'll know that you love God. Because everybody knows it is easier to show a little bit of restraint and strength and patience to somebody you don't know. That it is to give another opportunity, to give another chance, to get, hello somebody, to look at them another way, to extend another forgiveness, another I'm sorry, to accept another apology. It is a lot harder to do that with people you see every day. 
people that you've got history with, and, and they got history with you. That's when it gets hard, especially when you're trying to break out of your history, and they did not get the memo. You're trying to be a brand new person, and they are not helping you with your brand newness. Hello, somebody. And this can cause conflict. We've all been a part of it. We've all experienced it. We've all caused it. None of us like it. So James says, well, where did these quarrels and these conflicts with one another come from? In the church, dear saint, dear lover of God, dear forgiven of Christ. Because we should be able to see wars and nations that don't know God and people that don't know God. But we, we should not be seeing pettiness, bitterness, unforgiveness, and resentment amongst the people of God. You can call it what you want. It's resentment. You can call it what you want. It's not a complete forgiveness. Right? You can cover it up, but I just don't really fool up. You know, I just recognize. Mm -hmm. Right? So James says, where did this stuff come from? And he concludes that verse, the B clause of that verse. He said, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Nah, James, that ain't it. Jim, that ain't, that ain't, what it is is these people, these ninjas is getting on my nerves. What it is is he did and she did. And what it is is the job did and the boss did. And what it is is the bank got, got it messed up. And what it really is is that, that's what it is. It's, it's, my, it's my mom, my dad, my cousin, my sister. These, all, these kids you done gave me. It's, it's this spouse. It's, it, ain't, it ain't my passions in me. It is how these other people are coming at me. It's this situation, all right? It's this circumstance. If I had a circumstance, then there would be no problem. And he says, nah, your passions are at war within you. There's some stuff fighting within you. Now, sages of old have always told us something like, you know, your real problem isn't others, it's you. You know, you really got to defeat and conquer the inner me, you know. And we hear these things. We be like, yeah. And then somebody do something else. We be like, uh-uh, it's them. I'm fine. I was fine till them. Right? But then so all, that, all the wise people is wrong and you right. And the Bible is wrong and you right. It's safe to say that we probably got this wrong. And worth exploring a little bit. Right? Worth exploring. Because conflicts come that we might be reformed. All right? That's why they're brought to the believers. Reformed in some way. And I want us to stop saying so they can teach me something. It's deeper than that. You had to learn that lesson. You still messed up again. Hello? You learned it the last time. And you did it again this time. Now you're trying, well, what other new thing do I need to learn? Learning is not your problem. Being changed and reformed is your problem. You learned it, but this situation has not reformed, changed your heart. When people say, oh, no, I'm just trying to find out what God wants me to learn. N nothing. You know, he needs you to change. Not learn. Change. Change. Your heart has to change. Your perspective has to change. Your mindset has to change. Your character has to change. Your, your emotions have to change. You, you, you. Change. All right? Not just learn. Right? So I want to look at today uh, two stories, 
that's really one story. As we unpack what it means to, to be reformed by way of conflict, there are three types of conflict. People will give you seven types, 11 types, but they all boil down to these main three. Are you ready? Yes. There's task conflict. Task conflict. I got problems with doing something. Either you want me to do it and I don't want to do it, or I want to do it and you don't want me to do it, or I need to do it and I can't do it. it it's, it's, it's the problem is the task. I'm having conflict in doing something. Number two, it's relational conflict. I have a problem with the person, our friendship, our relationship, how we love one another, how we understand one another, how we communicate, how we see each other's perspective, how we re reciprocate love and affection. I have relational conflict. And number three, value con conflict. Value conflict. There's a conflict of values. Morals, principles. Like I know I love God, but I also <coughs> want to do this thing that is disobedient. That's a conflict, right? Those are the hardest ones because the Bible makes it plain that if you love me, you will obey me and, and my commandments will not seem burdensome. And so when we disobey him, we go, but I thought I loved you. Now I have a conflict in my values, yeah. right? Conflict in priorities. You know, go to work, get some sleep. Go to work, go to church, work overtime, help somebody out. All of these present conflict in our value system. It's not just a lack of values, but we have opposing values that in this particular case, they, they bumping against each other. And now I don't even know which one, am I picking the right one? Is this, the, should this, should I do this one? Because, or no, or is that, is that selfish of me to do that one, but I should really do the other one. Both of them seem, For believers that are not active in sin, and the biggest problem is what is godly versus what is good. Because that, that always boils down to a conflict of values. I got a good idea, but it's not a godly idea. I got a good intention, but not a godly intention. Nobody could fault you, but, right? It's not a sin, but. It is reasonable, but, right? Those are all areas of value conflict. Amen. Now, value, the types of, of conflict, value, uh, relational and task conflict in of themselves, they could be a one hit wonder. All right. Boom. Task conflict, blah, 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 blah. Did that move that task done? I'm out of this. Right. Relationship conflict, relational conflict. You know, you thought I said this. I said that I really meant to say this. My bad. I'm sorry. I forgive you. Bloop, bloop. Done. Move off to the side. Right? That could be a one-hit wonder. Value conflict. See, I knew it. Really, Jesus is first. Bump that up to the top. Everything else got to come down. Bloop, bloop, done. Move that off to the side. Types of conflict can be just one-hit wonders. But for the most part, in your day-to-day -day life, these types of conflicts continue on and grow and mount until they become cycles of conflict. All right, and there are three parts of the cycles of conflict. Are you ready in your notes? I want you to envision a circle, 
hence the word cycle. And in this circle, there are three points. There's conflict with God, conflict with others, and conflict with self. Conflict with God, conflict with others, and conflict with self. Whole circle. It's a cycle of stuff. When individual types of conflict are left unresolved, like let's say you solved it, but you're still holding on to it, right? You, you finish the task, but you still resent the person. You finish the task, but you still fear another situation like that. This is when those particular types of conflict have never really died. They're just laying very, very low and very still. And behind you, in the back of your mind, they're still running a conflict and begin to influence how you decide to handle things. That means that conflict is not settled. It's not done. It's just quiet. Make sense? When that happens, we enter into a cycle of conflict, right? Where it starts off at any point in this circle. You could have a problem with others. Daggone people. People just get on my nerves. People, I can't stand people. And all the people, this people, that people. Then you start having a list of people. I got a ton of people that I don't fool up with. And then you start thinking, well, is the problem me? So now maybe it's me. Maybe I've always been this kind of person my entire life. And I've always been one that looked like this, act like this, sound like this. I've always been aggressive. I've always been too quiet. I've always been a people pleaser. And that, but, but, but then again, God made me like this. So now I feel like, why did God make me like this in the first place? You can pick anything. It don't matter what you start with. You can start with God. You can say, God, I don't like the fact that you did this. I think that's very problematic, and I don't think you love me very much. And if God himself doesn't love me, then why in the world would I love myself? Because, I mean, if he made me, then I'm crap to him, then I must be crap to myself, and then everybody else treat me like crap, so I might as well be. It don't matter where you start in the cycle of conflict. It always goes around and around, covering all the bases. I can tell when people are in a cycle of conflict because they could have one huge problem in their life and every other thing is the issue. Why is you worried about that person when you have this huge plank in your eye? Why does this person at your job bother you so much when you have this over here to worry about, to consider, to be grateful for? Did God not spare you over here? And yet all of these people are getting on your nerves. It would seem to me as if you might be in a cycle of conflict. Some of y'all have lived like this your entire lives. You call it trials and tribulations. Ain't that many trials and tribulations in the world because God hasn't got a peace. You ain't had peace since the day you was born. They slapped you on your butt. You've been crying ever since. Yeah, and I'd be like, poor thing. Don't you want to just enjoy the freedom of, uh-uh, you got to be on alert, man. People might be, people might come to get you. Who is coming to get you? Keep your head on a swivel. What does that mean? <laughs> you pull, pull every scripture. You got, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is. You pull every scripture to be like, uh, I don't trust nobody. You, might, you get so used to living like this that you think it's normal. 
It becomes how you function. You, you've grown accustomed to this. And you look at other people who don't live like that, like, you're just prey. Somebody's going to get you. <laughs> I want to look at a narrative that some of us have heard a million times before in the Bible. But it shows both the types of conflict and the cycle of conflict. All right? It's a story of two individuals, and it starts in Genesis. Rightfully so. This is the beginning of all conflicts. It truly is. The beginning of man's problem. Where Adam and Eve entered into the conflict cycle with first having a conflict within themselves. I seek knowledge to be more like God. Then having a, compounding that, and then having a conflict with God. Because he said, don't eat of the tree. And you ate of the tree. And then that moved all the way around to now having a conflict with others because now you have to hide yourself from one another. That's not the example, but I'm just telling you. I was like, that's it? No. I'm just telling you, it all showed you right there the cycle of conflict that Christ himself had to redeem us from. It was never God's intention as the creator of all that we would stay in a persistent cycle of conflict, stress, and, 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 and problems. That wasn't his goal for us, right? But something went wrong within us, and we acted out, and we didn't stop it. It could have been a one-hit wonder. Hmm. You say, I'm not really like God as much as I want to be? Satan says, yeah, eat the tree. Uh, I feel bad that I'm not all that God wants me to be, but I think that eating that tree is going to compound the situation, so I'm going to back off. Conflict could be a one-hit wonder. But immaturity won't let that happen. It won't. And if we don't learn how to grow in God, it never will. Right? That age of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden was called the age of innocence. Right? And knowing the importance, which is probably a good value conflict, of when God says no is far more important than what you think and observe. I know this is tough because some of you still struggle with this. God can say yes, God can say no, but you still put on a pedestal what you think and what you feel. It's a recipe for a cycle of conflict, right? But let's fast forward from Adam and Eve, the beginning of all conflicts, and the need and necessity for God himself to come in the flesh to redeem us, to pay the penalty that this conflict would have caused, which is death, and say, hey, I love you. You don't have to go that way. Let's, let's come together here, died on the cross. Our sins are forgiven because of that one. We believe that that is the truest intent. What is so awesome about the gospel in that regard is that God did not intend for the mistake to cause us to be separate from everything he is and everything he desired. And he loved us so much that he wanted to fix that problem, right? But as we talked about, God doesn't cheat to win. If this is the system he started, this is the system to which he will redeem. He's not afraid of what he said. And, uh-oh, y'all messed up. Let me re erase what I said. Ah, we can go with this. And the joy of, that you and I are, have right now is if God would have judged it then, we would not be here. But he has delayed in judgment of the very sin that brought us here. And he says, I'm going to wait to judge all of this. But who do you think that I am? Who do you see me as? And when we mess up and we get in our flesh and carnality 
which is what happened to Adam and Eve, it is hard for us to see anything spiritually correct. So then God has to try to get us to see by the spirit, him who is a spirit. And he goes through laws and sacrifices and commandments and presence and power and might. And even in all of that, after days and days of problems and conflicts and tasks and conflicts and values and conflicts and relationships, it starts wearing thin. And before you know it, we forget who God is. Because the truth about conflict is it can really affect how you know God. And so he said, over generations and generations and generations, I've been trying to tell people, this is really what I am about, and I don't want you to be over here in death. I don't want stuff dying. But people, you got to come back and remember who I am. And that did not work. Then God came in flesh, born through Christ, and now we could see a physical example, a physical example of God. And that physical example that was without sin obeyed the Father to the utmost, even unto death. That death upon the cross, him having no sin but died, meant that he shouldn't have died, right? Because he had no sin. So thus, the chains of death are broken, and anyone that believes that God will love us so much that he would send his son in order to reunite us back to him because he is a good and loving and merciful God, anyone that believes that shall be saved from hell and damnation. It's pretty much the gospel, all right? This story happens in Genesis all the way to the book of Revelations. But somewhere around Genesis chapter 25, there's an idea where God, the nations, I don't know if you know the story. Okay, the nations had all grew and, and then the flood and then he wiped them out with the flood and nations keep growing. And he told them, look, okay, y'all want to have your own kind of situation? Uh, then go ahead. Every nation, you don't want to do what I want you to do? Go ahead. Be a nation unto yourself. He said, but the nation of Israel will be mine. And God declared this before there was a nation of Israel. It was just people groups, all right, that began to separate in same languages. He says, but when Israel shows up, that's mine. When we go to Genesis chapter 5, there is one man whose name was Jacob, and then his name is changed to Israel. It's a powerful move because this one man is the birth of the nation of Israel, whose responsibility was to take the understanding of who God is, the love, the mercy, and the grace, and to spread it amongst all nations. The task was hard. They didn't do well. It, it went oop-doop, and God had to come do it himself, all right? It's just pretty much he was like, all right, even as a whole nation, you can't get this done. All right, all right, all right. I'm going to do it myself, okay? So this one guy whose name became the epitome of what God wanted to bring into the world, Israel, a chance of redemption and truth and healing, it was claimed by one man. This one man's name is Jacob. This is before Christ, all right? Jacob shows up. His name is changed. But in order to understand Jacob, you got to understand his story. In Genesis chapter 25, in Genesis chapter 25, Jacob is born to Isaac and Rebekah, all right? Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah was barren. <clears throat> uh, Isaac prayed. Uh, she had some babies, all right? He first wanted, I think that was the case where they wanted Leah. He wanted Rebecca, but it, he was tricked and got Leah. Then he had to work for Leah. Then he had to work for Rebecca. Eventually, he got the one he loved, and if de facto, Rebecca and, 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 and Isaac began to have kids. All right. Um, when Rebecca was pregnant with Jacob, she had twins at the time. She had Jacob and his brother Esau. Whew. Powerful stuff. 
All right. In her womb, it was prophesied because while she was carrying these twins, they were fighting in her belly, like just wrestling. Can you imagine the baby tummy just moving all around? Like, what is going on in there? This is beyond kicking. This is, y'all are full on fighting inside of me. When they asked what, what was the cause, the Lord said to her, there are two nations that are in your womb. Two peoples uh, shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. All right, cool. So then she has the babies, all right? It's birthing day. And bloop, Esau starts coming out. They call him Esau because he's red-haired. He's got red hair, and he is hairy. And Esau meant red. So they was like, ha-ha, you're red. We're going to call you red. And that was his name. And me personally, I feel like these are more nicknames than they are actual names. Like, y'all didn't even give any thought to this. Like, ha, look at you, you red and hairy. Ah, you are Esau. Ha. Ah, they're just stuck. He's going to call him Esau. It's Esau at all his day. Can you imagine getting stuck with that kind of name? Where's your Esau? Red, because you're red and hairy. I'll tell you what. Your parents really thought about that, didn't they? All right. As he was being born, Jacob came out next with his hand on Esau's foot, indicating that Jacob and Esau were wrestling. And Jacob, in the belly, wanted to come out, get back in here. I'm going to go first. Get back. I'm, no. So when they pull out Esau, they say, is that, whose hand is that? The other baby's hand is on his foot. Oh, he's a supplanter. And the word supplant, all right, it doesn't just mean trickster. It means a person that takes advantage of an opportunity for gain. That's deeper than trickster. You could see how as he's coming out the womb and he's got his hand on his foot, you were trying, you were trying to take the opportunity. And not only that, but it seemed right to me, if you getting all the heavy pushing, if I just hold on your foot, I'm going to just slide on that when you go, I ain't even got to go through the birthing process. Ain't nobody got to push me out. I'll just come on out when you go out. <laughs> That's just a planter for you right there. I'm, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity. And so Jacob, again, no thought behind this name. Oh, look at you. You are you trying to take over, H. You ain't that cute. We're going to call you the takeover person. What? <laughs> that was his name. As they grew, Jacob and Esau, in tradition, had a lot of conflict as siblings, a lot of sibling rivalry, all right? And some traditions talk about this, you know, uh, Esau was a hunter. He would move, you know, cattle all through Jacob's harvest and fields because he would be a harvester. He would be in the tent, all right? And the tent meant that he loved to study the scrolls, the teachings of Noah and Shem. And so Jacob would always be there, right? Tilling the garden, going to the tent. His mama loved him, right? Esau, rough, rowdy type of person. Red, hairy, out here in these streets. I mean, feel. Just really, <laughs> really making it happen, okay? And they would have, tradition would say they have quarrels, like Esau would run his cattle through Jacob's uh, garden. Be like, man, why you get your cattle? Just move your cattle. You, why you got to plant stuff right there? You know, just... Now, the Bible records one of these occurrences, okay, and it shows up in uh, Genesis chapter 25. So, at one point, Jacob was cooking stew, and Esau, this is Genesis chapter 25, verse 29, and Esau came in the field from, from the field, and he was exhausted. 
Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Red stew. Redhead, furry, red stew. Makes sense to me. Red. Jacob said to him, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold him the birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Stop right there. So Esau's coming in from the field. Apparently, he did not make a kill that day. Or... No, he probably didn't make a kill. I mean, maybe he had to kill, but he had to cook it. No, nah, I really believe that he didn't even make the kill, okay? He made nothing. His, his brother is making some vegetable soup. Figured that. I'm out here dealing with the beast. You over here plucking vegetables. All right. Let me get some soup, man. I'm tired. I'm out here getting the real meat, okay? I'm getting the real work done, all right? You need to give me some of that soup because I'm out here really busting my tail, making it happen. Jacob was like, uh-uh, you ain't getting none of my soup unless you sell me your birthright. This is task conflict, right? This is Esau's task conflict. I went out hunting, did not get anything to eat, did not accomplish my task, and it's problematic. This then shows us relational conflict. Because if your brother, your brother is hungry, the least you could do is give him some stew. Oh yeah, you ain't gotta sell him the stew. Apparently, y'all got problems. Y'all always had problems. Y'all always taking advantage of you. Well, I don't know what to kiss. you always giving you a knucklehead sandwich. I don't know what he's doing, but you don't like it, and you are fed up with it. And so you selling the stew reveals the relational conflict. And when he agrees to selling his birthright, and he says to him, in essence, what do I care about a birthright when I'm getting ready to die? Because in essence, the birthright traditionally <clears throat> As it relates to the patriarchs of old, the birthright embraced the chieftainship, the rule over the brethren and the entire family, and the title to the blessing of the promise, which included the future possession of Canaan and the covenant fellowship with Jehovah. This is the big deal. Let me break that down. The birthright says, because you know Esau was born first, so naturally he has the birthright. He's going to be the head of the family. If there's some problems, he's supposed to take care of everybody. He's supposed to run the whole family, all right? That's the birthright. With that also came possessions. If you're going to run the family, you get the, the bulk of the family inheritance, all right, that you could then take care of the family. And lastly, this birthright for, uh, for uh, ancient patriarchs also showed that the covenant relationship would go to the firstborn. So the person that God would work through also went to the firstborn. Now remember, Jacob loved to study the scrolls. And he knew he was not in seat number one. But you are in seat number one. And you so stupid, you don't even know how important this is. Right? It's obvious you don't even care about leading the family Ever been, anybody ever been there? been there? It's obvious you don't even have any real understanding about our situation. It's obvious you're really not, you don't really love the family like I love the family. It's obvious you don't love God like I love God. It is obvious, and you just, 
you see, right? Everything about why this person is wrong for the job. Right? Nevertheless, Esau is oblivious. I'm getting ready to die. What do I care about a birthright? If I die, I can't run the family no way. So take it. Go ahead. I'll, you can have a birthright. Fine. Just give me the suit. Now, this is problematic because a lack of value of something God has done is considered to despise what he's done. When we don't appreciate and place what God has done in the appropriate value in our lives, it's equivalent to despising it. God made you first, Esau. I don't care nothing about that. Because the birthright is not tangible. Is it? I'm the firstborn. I'm going to run the family. What? You can't eat that. The birthright is not tangible. The birthright is spiritual. The possessions and the blessings are carnal. So in essence, Esau had no problem giving up something that could only be appreciated spiritually and long term for something he could have right now and physical. I wonder how many things we tell God, because you know, you look, oh, Esau, he was down. That's messed up. Ah, uh, is he? Because how many times did your heart say to the father, well, if you're not going to do this for me, then what's the point of? And if I can't have this, then why do I even? And what's it mean to even live if you're not going to? I'm about to live single. Why even live if I got to live without a husband, live without children, live without a wife? Why even go through this if I gotta, can't have this job? I will always be broke. And you start saying, what is the point of earthly living if you don't give me the things I need on earth and all you're doing is promising me heaven down the road? And don't act like y'all ain't never thought that. You promised me heaven and paradise, uh, but right now I'm here, and this is horrible. And many of us has tried to make an exchange that we can take care of some current conflict right now, and we have devalued the spiritual blessing that came with that thing that you can't have right now. Oh, you got to have sex so bad. Hello? Talk about it. You got to have money so bad that you'll lie, cheat, sin. You got to be right so bad you'll curse, yell, scream. You gotta, you gotta, you're so angry that you got to inflict pain on somebody else. And all of this is just something temporary you need right now. But what God is trying to get you to see is I have a blessing for the meek. I have a blessing for the long suffering. I have a blessing for those that are poor. I have a blessing. The whole kingdom. Let me just back in the biblical days. Okay. These time periods, the people who really wrote stuff was not the poor. It was the wealthy. The people that had any say so was the wealthy. The people that had any decisions was the wealthy. The people that could read and write were the wealthy. And thus the people that had anything to say were the wealthy. The Bible is unique in that it is written by poor people defending poor people with a God that made himself poor in order to raise up poor people. So when Jesus was preaching the good news, he's like, you coming to us, the poor people? 
us, the no decision, no power having, no decision making, the disenfranchised, the kicked off to the side. We can't change the world if we tried. And you come to us, you need to go over there to the, the people that they really make the decisions. The people in power. And he preached and said, but the kingdom is yours. This, this was the kingdom. So we're not forgotten. You're not forgotten. So we're not going through this for nothing. It's like good people, bad people. We got the bad people side. That's the way the coin was tossed. Oh, well. Nah, it's for you. It's for us. It's for you. The meek shall inherit the kingdom of the earth. This was mind-blowing to them. You mean people that got to take it? People that just got to keep going? People that got to take whatever the other people dish out? That we are the winners? You're the winners. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it was something about virtue and honor, and I knew it was, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, and everything was telling me it wasn't, but thank you. Thank you. I love this gospel. This is great news. Who are you? Were you Jesus? I knew it. You should be Jesus. You're definitely God. I got it. That's good news. That's good news. Because all of us have been in situations where we felt like we're being overlooked. God, the word, it's telling us to just submit and take it. And we're like, I can't take it. And then let's say something there's nothing you could do about. There are things happening that you cannot change it. And you're looking at God going, for real? He's gonna just going to let this happen to me like this? Like, so that's what we're doing? Esau did not know the value of his birthright. He couldn't understand that relationship with God was going to happen through him. Like the promise and the covenant for his family and every other nation was going to happen through him. If that is what God intended, you cannot possibly die right now. So it really wasn't the fear of death as much as you want to believe, drama queen. It was really you just wanted what you wanted right now. You were tired of suffering, tired of putting up with it, tired of always having to be the one to apologize, tired of always having to want to make, to be the one to make it right, tired of the one that always has to reach out. I'm just tired of it. Oh. And you say, I'm going to die. No, you're not. I can't take it. I'm, I'm going to kill myself. Barely, barely, barely. Because even that is in the hands of God. You're going to be short a limb. I mean, that's pretty. That's in the hands of God. Your own life is in the hands of God, even at your best attempt. So now, so now you just stuck. Right? Esau could not see the blessings and the benefit of the birthright. And the only time you see him, let's fast forward, all right? Because as we move through Esau's story, we find later, Isaac grows old. There's a whole bunch of fights about wells, and, you know, they, they get married. By the end of chapter 26, Esau is 40 years old, and he decides to get married. That's promising for some of us. But <laughs> he decides to get married, but he marries two Hittite women. Okay, now he was supposed to marry, you know, people in his own, you know, family lineage, like a cousin, distant cousin, first cousin, third cousin, 
down there, your uncle's brother's sister's wife, somewhere in, in your tribe, okay? In the mix, one of the tribes, okay? That is, that is not what he did. He went out and married two old worldly girls, two Gentile, these brought these heathen women into your mom and daddy house, right? And decided to marry them. And the Bible says that this, these women made Isaac and Rebecca, their lives bitter. Like they were miserable with these two women in the house. Just miserable. Now bear in mind, if you know who Isaac is, Isaac was the son of Abraham who decided when Abraham heard God say, kill your son, Isaac was like, all right, let's make it happen, God. This is how for the cause Isaac was. But he has a son that is so for himself that it is ridiculous. He brought these old Hittite women, you, these Hittite girls. So as, when Isaac gets old, somewhere around chapter 27 of Genesis, Isaac gets old. Let's go there because we're going to cover quite a few chapters here and verses. He gets old and he tells his son, Isaac tells his son, Esau. I'm about to get old. All right. I am old. I don't know when I'm going to die. Let me give you a blessing now so you'll know what's yours. Go make me some stew, bring it to me, and I'm going to bless you. He said, not a problem, Dad. Rebecca hears that Isaac has just told Esau to come get this blessing. Now, everybody know the birthright is Jacob's. And technically, the blessing of the firstborn with extra profits and money, all right, goes to the person that is firstborn. Esau sold his birthright privileges to Jacob. So technically, Jacob was supposed to get the blessing anyway, but that is not what happened. Isaac still favored Esau, even though it's Jacob that's been studying the word of God, even though it's Jacob that has been faithful, even though it's Jacob that understands the value, and it's Jacob that he actually sold the birthright to, and you still going to go ahead and give him the blessing? Rebecca hears this. She's like, oh, no. It ain't going down like that. Number one, he got these old Hittite women in my house. <laughs> you ain't about to leave me here with no Esau, these Hittite women, Isaac. You ain't going to do it. You ain't, it was going to be Jacob. He was going to run it. But now you want to give Esau the blessing. I got to deal with that. I'm not dealing with that. So she tells Jacob, trick your father. <laughs> make him, I'll make the stew that he likes. You give it to your father. and put some, some goat hair on your hands. Make it smell all outdoorsy. You go in there, you tell your father that you Esau. Trick your dad and get it, right? right. <laughs> he, I, uh, what's his name? Jacob says, Mom, this can't be right. <laughs> Mom, if I go in here trying to get this blessing with this deception, I'm going to get cursed. She says, look, whatever curse that could happen to you, it, just put it on me. Now, when I hear her tell him this, okay, I'm thinking, when a person says, look, if it's wrong, I'll take it, you must really be sure that this is right. I mean, you must, because this is a heavy, to be cursed of God, you, it must be something in Rebecca that's going, mm, yeah, this is still right. We're going to go ahead and get this, right? He said, all right, cool, we'll go. He goes in there, tricks his brother, uh, tricks his dad. His dad says, Esau, is that you? It sounds, you sound like Jacob. Your voice sounds like Jacob. <laughs> but your hands and your, your neck... And, and, you, and you, you smell, you smell like Esau. <laughs> Jacob then says, no. He said, are you really my son Esau? Jacob says, I am. 
Now this starts the first conflict, evident conflict with self. In order to get what you're so passionate about, you're willing to become somebody you're not. Y'all don't wanna help me today. So could it be that conflict comes from our own passions? That are having, that are riling on the inside of us. But this is a good thing to have. It's, but it's a good passion. But yet and still, you're willing, even for this good and noble passion, to become somebody you're not supposed to be, that you might fulfill this passion. That's not how that's supposed to go. And now we, we see already, Jacob is about to enter into a cycle of conflict. Esau revealed the three types of conflict, but Jacob is going to show us the cycle of conflict and how to get out of it, how to break it. All right. Amen. So he said, it's, I, I'm, I'm Esau. Dang, I'm Esau. I mean, think about he had to, he had to do a lot to become somebody he wasn't. He had to put on traits that were not his. He had to present things that were not originating from himself. He had to do a lot to get this. His dad says, all right, well, you definitely smell like him. You feel like him. I guess you're him. So then Isaac gives Jacob the blessing, thinking that it's Esau. And he says to him, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and, the, and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine and let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. It's a powerful blessing. Yeah. Right? Now, earlier when they were fighting in the womb, it was already prophesied. Do you guys remember this? that nations will are in your womb, that two people groups shall come and be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. These two phrases, one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. I wonder if Isaac cleaved so much to Esau because he was apparently physically stronger. Apparently. And I could see if I had to, well, God did say the stronger was going to do it. So Jacob is not strong. I, Esau, he's strong. Right? I wonder if that was going on in his mind as a parent that has to hear the voice of God for their children. And then the, the younger, the, the older shall serve the younger. Now, I don't, they, then he did it. He bought it, sold it. Okay, now I'm confused. I don't even know. You smell like him. All right, the blessing is yours. When he gets done blessing um, Esau, Jacob, who was pretending to be Esau, Esau comes in with the stew he has made. He's like, Dad, I got the stew. His dad was like, uh, what, do you, what do you mean you got the stew? I already ate the stew. <laughs> All right? Definitely conflict. All right? I already ate the stew. You brought it to me earlier. What's going on? Dad, that was not me. It wasn't you. It was not me. It was your brother. Oh, no. The, the supplanter, he's done it again. He's got me again, and he is so mad. Yes? He's 98 hot about this. He can't believe that yet again you have taken advantage of an opportunity. 
yet again, Jacob. You have muscled your way, snuck your way, grabbed your way into getting even the blessing. And he says, Dad, don't you still have a little bit of blessing left for me? He was like, son, I ain't really got nothing, okay? I done gave it all to your brother, and it's going to stand. That is how it is set. And he's like, what? And he's crying. He's like, that can't be. And he says, I'm blessed you. But everything he blessed was the exact thing that he already said what happened to the younger, which is now you. You're going to serve your brother, and he's going to rule over you, and eventually you're going to fight against him and break his yoke off of his, off your neck. And these are the nations that will come from you. And Esau's mad. He vows to kill his brother after his daddy dies. You just wait. After this mourning period is over, I'm going to get you. Tough conflict. Rebecca hears when Isaac dies that Esau's going to kill Jacob, he says, she says, run. Run, ninja, run. Run. Your brother is comforting himself with the idea that he gets to kill you in order to comfort himself for his dead dad dying. And between grief and anger, you is dead. You better run. So he takes off running, right? And he runs for a very long time. He runs, ends up getting a uh, situation. He gets wife, he gets kids, and, and it's all seeming to go pretty well. He grows in his own family to the point where he has so much that he can separate them into two. When he separates it, he needs to go back home because the person, his, his uncle that he was staying with, is tired of him. He overstood, overtook, over, overstayed his welcome. Get out, get your stuff, and leave. They come back, they have some resolution, but ultimately, you need to keep going. He says, not a problem. It's time for me to go back home anyway. <sighs> so he sends messengers back to uh, Esau to say, hey, I'm sorry for the problems that I have caused. I'm sorry I stole your birthright and your blessing. And, and you know, I don't know if there could be any peace between us, but I recognize now, you know, I've matured, I've grown, I've changed. And so this is him. You know how you do. You got real smart all of a sudden. You had some conflict, and you feel like you think you figured out how to solve your life's problems. And so now you're trying to implement the new things you've learned, and you think that this is going to break the cycle of conflict because you really thought that your conflict was with your past. You really thought it was with that person. You thought it was your daddy, your mama issues, your cousin issues. And so then you realize what I got to do is what I, I need to start creating boundaries for myself. And what I'm going to, I'm going to breathe, take 10 breaths. And then when they, when I feel triggered, what I'm going to do, that's you. I have found methods to make sure I don't get caught up in that, in that cycle of others and conflict with others again. And it still don't work. Still don't work. He says, I learned, I'm going to go, I'm going to be nice and kind, just like I did with Laban. We're going to come to a, a, a we're going to have a, a, a conversation. And we're going to share our hearts, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness, and they're going to ask for forgiveness, and then we can go our separate ways in peace. Forgiveness. This, this is what you think is about to break your cycle of conflict. It's having a conversation with somebody else. Let me say it again. You think that you can break your cycle. The conflict is yours. And you think you can break your cycle of conflict by talking to someone else. How can talking to someone else solve what is happening inside of you? But there are coaches all over the internet writing books and selling it to you. Here. 
Solve your internal problems by external means. Burn some sage. Rub a crystal. Take a bath. Count to ten. What? No. And you're like, yeah, I think I think this might work. He sends the messengers on. <laughs> right? He's nervous. He's nervous. He's very nervous. He's so nervous about the idea of what's going to happen. As he leaves Laban's camp, he goes out on his way home. But in the process, he has a dream in a very holy place. And this is the dream that he has about Jacob's ladder. And he has a dream that he sees angels coming up and down from earth to heaven. And in this dream slash vision, uh, the messengers that were going up and down came and spoke to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to oh wait. So in Jacob's ladder, God begins to promise Jacob something. On his way to Laban's house, excuse me, Jacob encounters a vision where he sees a dream, where he sees the, the heavens open and angels are ascending and descending upon the heavens. And as he dreamed, he beheld there was a ladder that was set up on earth. This is 28, chapter 28. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And he just keeps blessing them, right? Then he says, he says, and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until the day I have done what I've promised you. This is powerful. Okay. He's fleeing from his brother and God solidifies that he has the birthright. He solidifies that, that, that transaction's done. The blessings your dad gave you is true. I am now making my covenant with you, second born. He's like, oh, my God. Then he goes to Laban, stays there for many, many, many years, gets family, gets all kind of stuff, has some babies. And then when Laban kicks him out, he knows, the Lord said, I got to go back to my, to my hometown. <sighs> so he sent messengers to Esau. Brother, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm be my apologize. I would like for us to meet and really, you know, have a heart-to-heart -heart about this. You know how you do. You know, I really like for us, you know, just for closure and, you know. And when the messengers come back and tell him how Esau received it, they say, um, Esau is on his way to meet you. And he got 4,000 folk with him. It was 400. 400 men with him. Okay. These is not his caravan of help. These are soldiers. In essence, he is coming for you. Now, I don't know if he's coming for you or he don't trust you, but he got 400 men to come with him on this meeting, armed and ready. Esau, uh, Jacob is like, oh, Lord. And so he says, oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, oh, Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Stop right here. Jacob is now saying, but you said... You said that you was going to be with me. Now, this particular statement is very intriguing 
Because when Jacob had the dream about the ladder and God blessed him, Jacob did not initially receive that blessing in his heart. If you go back, Jacob said, if God will allow me to go back to my homeland safely, then I will believe and serve him. He had a condition that God, if you say you're going to do this and you done did all this Jacob ladder, I'm seeing the angels coming up and down. I might be inclined to believe you because this is a really powerful move that you're doing. But I'm not going to fully believe until you actually let me get back home safely. I want you to see the heart of Jacob. Here's a man that has always had to make it happen for himself. He would see something nobody else could see. He would know something that nobody else could, could believe in him to do. And he was left by circumstance to always try to figure out how to make this thing happen, how to do it on my own. Hello, somebody. Now, now the issue is because he was not born first. And the truth is he could have been because they were twins. He had every chance and opportunity to not have this situation befallen him, to be better set up for what God is calling me to do, to be better set up to be the type of mother, the type of father that you want me to be. I could have been better set up to be the type of person that could handle this, but instead I was born into a situation that does not afford me the opportunity to be exactly what I needed to be in my entire life. I had to keep trying to make it work. How do you keep trying to make it work? So I'm not, okay, so I'm not the firstborn. Well, I'm going to go here and study the law. I'm going to study the rules. All right, so I'm not strong. I'm going to make some soup, and y'all going to like my soup. Okay, so my dad has rejected me. He's always loved my brother first. D D Jacob's got some, uh -huh, some conflict with self. He's got some conflict with others, but he's got conflict with self. And so even when God Almighty comes down in the most powerful way, I mean, a word of knowledge, a prophecy, a healing, some miracle, and God says, I'm going to be with you, and I got you, and I'm going to use you the way you always wanted to be used, and you still are reserved in believing it. Why? Because you have a history of trying to make it happen for yourself. It's hard to tell a person that always had to try to figure it out by themselves that they no longer have to figure it out by themselves because in truth, you put me here. Now here comes the conflict with God. In truth, you put me in this situation where I, didn't ha I had to figure it out. You allowed me to be born into that situation. You made this happen to me. You let my parents get divorced. You're the one that brought this to me. You let that person die. You did it, and now I'm always forced out to figure this out. And now you want me to trust you. I mean, true, you moved in a mighty way, and I'm inclined, but if I have to think about it, all of this could have been avoided had you, God, had done this. And all this could have been avoided if you only would have done this and not that and done this and not that. Because I know that I'm not supposed to be in this situation, but I've been trying to make it work the best way I can. And after, if I look back, you want me to tell you to trust you now, but you're the reason why I had to do it the hard way in the first place. Come on, be honest. That's conflict with God. Be honest. You look over at your brother. He was always favored. He was always the stronger. 
It seemed like everybody always liked him. Nah, 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 nah. You know, you know how we do. But it's your it's you. All these were in your hands. And you saw me struggle with this. And you saw this go down. And now you want to come and save me? And you want me to trust you? All right. If you let me get back home to do what you said, and you make this pain go away with this conflict with my brother, I'll trust you. And he goes to Laban. Laban kicks him out. Esau is on his way to get him. Now he has to remember what God promised. See, it was all good and hypothetical. You talk big noise earlier. I don't know if I could believe you, God. I don't know if I could trust you, God. I don't know if I could. You know, come on, come on. You do. You talk big noise. I don't even know if I could trust you like that, God. I don't even feel. I don't even know why I can't trust you. I don't know why I have a hard time believing you. I don't know why I have such a hard time. Big noise. But when the day actually comes and somebody is knocking on your door to peel your muffin cap back blue, you stop feeling like, why? I don't know if I can trust you. You start calling, but you said that you would deliver me, but you said that you would give me favor, but you said, forget not believe you. I got no choice but to believe you. There's nowhere else I can go. Come on, be honest. When God saw you, I don't even know if I could trust God. I just got a hard time trusting God. He wasn't even faced. He was like, oh, okay, you got a hard time trusting me. I know. I'm the cause of all your problems. I get it. But he's going to bring that conflict right to your doorstep. And none of your efforts can resolve it. And when no more of you trying to make it work, works. Y'all don't want to help me. When no more of you trying to fix it, fixes it. When no more of you trying to handle it, handles it. When no more of you trying to get it right, gets it right. When you have come to the end of yourself, you got nowhere to go, but trust God. You said you would help me. You said you would be with me. You said you would deliver me. I got nothing else to try but you. He said, I ain't worried about that. I'm going to put you in this situation. Well, you ain't got nothing else to trust but me. You know you can do, baby. So you cry out. You cry out. Can't nobody fix this but you. I'm trusting you. I'm out here. And I'm stuck. And I could do some things, but that stuff ain't working. And if I do do it, then it's going to make it even worse. I already know. Just, uh. So you send the message on Lauren. You send gifts to your brother. When you guys meet, the conflict is resolved. But something has happened in the midst of this. There had to be a change that went down. When he prays, he says, God, you said that night, he let everybody go ahead of him, separated his family. So if anybody had to bear the brunt of his brother's wrath, it would just be him. He cried on God, called out for God. And that night, he just did whatever he had to do. I'm just going to protect what I can. Sent his kids and family on. As he rested there that night by himself, somebody showed up. 
the same night, he arose and took his two wives, two female servants, and 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. And he took them and sent them. This is chapter 32, verse 23. And he took them and sent them across the stream. And everything else he had, he let it go. I'm no longer going to try to keep this family together. I'm no longer going to try to hold it together. I'm no longer going to try to make this work. I'm going to send them across the stream, and they're in your hands. He just got tired. I let it go. I let the things I'm passionate about go. And I put them in your hands. Whatever befalls them is, is up to you. And as he did this, Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. This is verse 24. Some man showed up and starts fighting Jacob. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Stop right there. Do you see this? I won't let you go until you bless me. Let me keep reading. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. When I read this last line, have prevailed, I'm thinking, but you lost the fight. Anybody else see that? You was wrestling all night. He touched you on your hip. Your hip went out and you lost. But your name means one that struggled with man and with God and prevailed. And so I had to think, where is the prevailing? Where's, where's the prevailing? Let's back up a little bit. We see that he's in a cycle of conflict. We see his conflict with others, clearly. We see the conflict with himself. And now this being that he's wrestling with is a Christophany, Christ in, uh, in an earthly form before he was born. Now he's wrestling with God himself, literally wrestling with God. This action here is revealing his entire life in one move. His entire life in one move. Because he says, I won't let you go until you what? Bless me. All I ever wanted was my father's blessings. All I ever wanted was for somebody to give me a name that fit what I'm called to do. All I ever wanted was for somebody to see me who, for who I'm supposed to be. All I ever wanted was somebody to equip me and prepare me to do what I'm supposed to do. And I've been trying to make it happen on my own and it hasn't been happening. And I've been trying to go through it and keep my head up and it ain't been working. But all I ever really wanted was God to bless me so all he wanted was God to bless him all I ever wanted I thought it was my father's blessings 
it wasn't. I thought it was my mamas, it wasn't. I thought it was my friends, my sisters, my pastors, it wasn't. I thought I needed their approval. I thought I needed them to push me. I thought I needed them to see me. I thought I needed them to know me. But all I ever really wanted was for you to bless me. And I'm beginning to realize that no other blessing matters if you don't bless me. And no other position matters if you don't bless me. And my soup don't matter. My birthright don't matter. My family don't matter. What matters to me is that I have the blessings of God. The blessing to see God and to be seen by God. I just won and prevailed because I saw God and he saw me. He saw me. He gave me a new name. I'm no longer the supplanter. Well, I had to take advantage of opportunities to make things happen. But now I'm one that prevail, that struggled with men and with God himself, and I won. What did I win? I won the Father's blessings. Y'all don't want to hear me today. I won the blessing of God himself. Well, what did you do? When he hit my hip, I let go. Well, what did you do? When he touched me, I let go. Well, how did you win? When he touched me, I let go. I let God have his way. I won because I finally recognized that I need to let God have his way. That it's all right if I'm second born. It's all, come on now. It's all right if I dwell in the tents. That it's all right if I didn't have the favor. And it's all right if they didn't pick me. And it's all right if they didn't know me. And it's all right if they didn't accept me. And it's all right if I came in last place. I finally recognized that I need to let God have his way. So what did you win? I no longer wrestle with God because I won. You beat God? No, I was blessed by God standing all over the house.